the 10th chapter of the book of Ecclesiastes. It is possible for a person to live his life from the wrong perspective and never really know that, be aware of it. He can, it is possible for a person to think he's doing all the right things and be doing all the wrong things. There is a way that seems right unto man, but the end thereof is death. They, it is possible to live your, you know, your whole life living from the wrong perspective. There is a, a story, an Indian story from folklore about a young brave who found an egg, the egg of an eagle. Uh, by the way, Peter Lord has a book which is a takeoff on this fable from Indian, Indian lore. And he took this, eagle, this egg of the eagle and he, he put it in the nest of a prairie chicken. And this dumb prairie chicken sat on this egg not knowing, you know, what was happening. What a surprise, you know, one day. Well, anyway, that, that, that eagle uh, hatched out of that egg and that the prairie chicken had, had sat on. And uh, the eagle became, you know, started living like prairie chickens live, you know, scratching in the ground for, for seeds and grubbing for worms and clucking like prairie chickens. Just doing like prairie chickens do. And occasionally the eagle would flap his wings and would fly a few feet, you know, like prairie chickens fly. And one day he saw in the heavens this magnificent bird soaring on the currents way up there. And he remarked to his neighbor, you know, man, what a beautiful bird. What is that? And his neighbor said, that's an eagle, king of the birds, but... You know, don't give it a second thought. You'll never, you, you know, that was never meant for you. And so this eagle died. Years passed, he got old and he died. Convinced he was a prairie chicken. He was made to soar. He was made to be the chief of birds, but he settled for living the life of a prairie chicken in a world of fools. And that's what Solomon calls them where people settle for mediocrity and beat the drums for a secular, humanistic lifestyle. Many of us, made to be like eagles, have settled for the life of mediocrity, the life of a prairie chicken. It's easy for us to opt for that life because everybody around us, the majority of people around us do that. And it's easy to assume that because everybody else is living like that, that's the right way to live. Now, where have we been for nine chapters in the book of Ecclesiastes? What Solomon has been doing in this book has been talking about a prairie chicken lifestyle. And this kind of life, as he's talked about, has no substance, no density. It has no significance to it. It's an ever-present, boring monotony. And he says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. This life of the prairie chicken isn't what it's cracked up to be. And what a wonderful relief now that we've come to this interlude, chapter 10. You can almost kind of hear a sigh come from this book. You know, at last, we're out of this, out of this stuff. It's kind of like riding down the highway in a, in a, in a storm. You, you've been there where it's just raining and wind is blowing, and when you finally drive out of it, there's just this sigh of relief, you know. 
And so we come to chapter 10 in this interlude, and, and it's like the, the raising of, of the curtain on the real stuff, on the real life. It's like, like Act 3. This is the way that it ought to be. This is what we've been looking for all this time. Now, chapter 10 is a, ten, is a tough chapter to understand and interpret. You better be glad you're sitting out here and not having to try to do what I'm doing up here. Well, what we have in chapter 10 is the contrast between the life of wisdom and the life of a fool. It's the contrast between seeing life from a divine perspective and seeing life from a humanistic perspective, the contrast of the eagle and the prairie chicken. That's what chapter 10 is about. And remember that this is poetry. This is wisdom literature. This is symbolical. And you're going to have trouble with Ecclesiastes chapter 10 if you if you insist on a literalistic interpretation of Scripture, it's not going to happen. What we have in chapter 10 is poetry and music and symbolism. And so read with me verse 1. I heard a, I heard a sermon when I was a kid preached from this verse. I thought it was the most magnificent sermon I'd ever heard. I realize now it was the worst theology that a guy could come in. Dead flies make a perfumer's oil stink. So a little foolishness is weightier than wisdom and honor. Now he's not concerned about flies and perfume. What he is talking about is the significance of the effect of a few flies in perfume. I mean just a few little dead flies in a costly bottle of perfume ruin it or stink it up. He's talking about the significance of the effect of a few little flies in a, in, a, in, an oil, in, a, in a bottle of perfume. And the reference here is to a life of folly, just a few stupid choices. Just to, listen to me, just a few foolish choices in a life of honor cast a shadow over that honor. Just a few stupid choices in a, in, a, in a lifetime of honor, cast a shadow over that lifetime of honor. Um, anybody that knows anything about baseball knows that 1951, uh, the Brooklyn, then Brooklyn Dodgers had a 13-game lead in the National League, and they were on a roll, they were on a slide, and they got into a slump, and the Giants got into a, got on a roll, and they were gaining on them, and as a matter of fact, they made up that 13-game deficit, and it came down to the last game of the season, to the last half of the, of the, of the ninth inning, and, the, and, and, and Ralph Branca, who was pitching for the Dodgers, he had, there were two men on, the Giants had two men on base, two out, and Branca grooved a fastball. Duke Snyder has got a book out, and I was listening to him interview the other day on a talk show, and he said that he talked to Branca after that game. He said, as soon as I let the pitch go, I wished I had it back, but I couldn't get it. And Bobby Thompson hit that pitch that Ralph Branca grooved over the fence for a home run, and the Giants won the series and went to the World Series. And Ralph Branca is forever nailed to that one pitch. He'd been a great pitcher. He was a great pitcher. He was a tremendous pitcher. But he's all, he'll be forever remembered by that one pitch. He's nailed forever to that one pitch. 
Just one bad choice, folks. Just one stupid mistake. And you're nailed to that mistake for the rest of your life. Hear me well, young people. Just one foolish mistake and you're nailed to that forever. Example, Watergate. And here is a man who came in into office on a landslide. Whatever you want to write across that man's life, write this word, stupid. Example, Chappaquiddick. For the folly of one bad mistake, casting a shadow over a lifetime of honor. Now you're going to see this word folly or foolishness again and again in this text. You see it often in the Bible. think it's time to define it. It's a term that means lack of good sense, lack of foresight. It's failing to recognize the consequence of a stupid act before the act. I need to say it again. The fool is a person who fails to recognize the consequence of a stupid act before the act. Is anybody here wouldn't like to go back and undo some of those stupid mistakes you've made? And I think it probably most of us would, you know, would admit, would, would agree, that if we had just considered the consequence of that, we'd have never chosen that. Verse 2. A wise man's... Now, if I were a Republican, I'd put this on a plaque and I'd, I'd hang it up in my office and I'd, I'd, I'd go to the Republican National Chairman and I'd say, hey, let this be our motto. Look at that. A wise man's heart directs him, to, him toward the right, but a foolish man's heart directs him toward the left. Doesn't have anything to do with politics, however. Somebody will, you know, probably use that one day as a, as a proof text for you know, the right wing of the Republican Party. It has nothing to do with politics. Right, watch this, is the symbol of that which is worthy of our effort and pursuit. It's the symbol of that which is worthy of our effort and pursuit. Wise, the wise man goes in the direction of that which is really worthy of his time and effort. It has substance and value to it. Illustration. The right hand is where God is. The psalmist says, the Lord is at my right hand. And all the way through Scripture, you find it again and again, that, that the right hand is where God is. In other words, this is what he's saying. The wise man goes God's way. It's the way of power and protection. The wise man chooses God's way. It's the way that's worthy of his time and effort, of his pursuit the wise man goes God's way. It's the way of power and protection. Notice it's from the heart. It's not just some spontaneous act. Now watch what he's saying. That the wise person, the person who is able to really get a handle on perspective, is a person who makes a decision once and for all. He's going to go God's way in every issue. Verse 3. Even when the fool walks along the road, his sense is lacking. And he demonstrates to everyone that he's a fool. In other words, he's saying, this, guy's, this guy, a fool's dangerous to run with. He's dangerous to ride with. He doesn't even have good sense on the road. I want you to take your finger down and turn back to chapter of Proverbs 17. Look at verse 12. 
Now what Solomon is doing is helping us to see that the wise man is a man who makes the right choices. The foolish man makes these dumb choices, stupid mistakes, these dangerous to run around with. Look at verse 12, chapter 17. Let a man meet a bear robbed of her cubs rather than a fool in his folly. You know what he's saying? He's saying if you're running around with a, with a fool, he's more dangerous than a mother bear robbed of her cubs. He's more dangerous than a mother bear who is angry. Be careful who you choose as your friends. Now these Proverbs, you understand the Ecclesiastes chapter 10 and just a series of little Proverbs. You can't outline this. You just deal with the Proverbs. But he moves from the relationship, the choices, the contrast of the wise and the fool individually. And he moves to the social life, verses 4 through 7. And he pictures graphically what a fool is like when, he's, when his life touches other people. He moves into the social realm. He says in verse 4, if the ruler's temper rises against you, do not abandon your position because composure allays great offenses. Now he's talking here about a hot-headed boss. He's telling us how to, how to respond to that hot-tempered person that is in that little circle of your life and that little sphere of your existence. What he's saying is this, he's saying don't change your lifestyle, don't lash back or fight back. He may be even saying don't quit your job and walk off in a huff if you've got one of these hot-headed bosses. Composure allays great offense. Even a fool understands a quiet spirit. And, and, and what he's saying in essence is that the nature of the prairie chicken is to scream back or to respond out of control. And this is the life of the wise man. He, he has composure. He has, he has it all together. He, he doesn't lash back and return kind to kind. Verses 5 through 7. There is an evil I've seen under the sun like an arrow which goes forth from the ruler. Folly is set in many exalted places, while rich men sit in humble places. I have seen slaves riding on horses and princes walking like slaves on the land. What in the world does that mean? Watch this. is an interesting little uh, play on words here. He's talking about rulers. He's talking about politicians. He's talking about people in authority. He's saying this is a topsy-turvy world. The people who are in authority ought to be the people that are being ruled, and the people who are ruling ought to be ruled, and the ones who are being ruled ought to be the ones who are ruling. I mean, fools sometimes get elected senators and mayors, and sometimes they become pastors of churches. And it's a topsy-turvy world, he said, I was looking out the window one day and I saw the princes walking and the slaves riding on the horses. Got it in complete reverse. That's what happens so often. These bodies of ours are supposed to be the, the servants of the Spirit. And they've become the masters. The appetite has become the master of the Spirit. 
and, and God has given us money and, and, and possessions, material possessions, to be, our, to be our slaves. And they've become our masters, a topsy-turvy world, saying. And the things that are to be our servants have become our rulers. And the things that God has given us to, for us to use now have become our masters. And then he goes to chapter, to verse eight, verses 8 through 11. I want to give you the obvious of this. The obvious is this. He who digs a pit may fall into it. One day I was uh, doing a funeral and we were out at the cemetery. And it was raining and pouring down rain and they, they had this grave there. And the funeral director was walking around and he said, Now be careful, it's slick, you might fall in. And he fell in right, right after he said that. Um, the, the obvious is that he who digs a pit may fall into it. And the serpent may bite him who breaks through a wall. You break through a wall, he gets your hand there, and the serpent might bite him. And he who quarries stones may be hurt by them. And he who, he who splits logs may be endangered by them. Who has not been cutting logs and let them fall on his toe? That's the obvious. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying that the person who digs a pit for another, he sets somebody up. You, you see what he's saying? Somebody digs a pit and he puts little branches and camouflages it to trap somebody from to fall in. And so you set somebody up and you dig a pit for somebody to fall. You're the one who falls into it. And you break through a wall to try to steal from someone else and you're the one who gets bitten by the serpent. And you quarry in the stone, in the, in the, in the stone field to to take from somebody else's life what is valuable and precious to them, even if it's their reputation. And, and you're the one who suffers for it. That's what he's saying. He's talking about the fool who spends his life abusing and using other people, and he's the one who is hurt because of it. And then he says in verse 10, If the axe is dull and he does not sharpen its edge, then he must exert more strength. Wisdom has the advantage of giving success. You go home tonight and you pick up the Sunday paper, you may read a lot about success. You won't read much about wisdom. Wisdom prepares the way for success. I remember as soon as I got out of college, I, I thought oh, the world needs me and the world wants me. Here I am. A little old church around about 30 in Sunday school called me. I wasn't going, I didn't, you know, I didn't need to go to seminary. I got out there and spent about two years and realized how ignorant I was, even though I had a college. I went out to the seminary, and I remember they had orientation class, and the professor, the guy got up and leading the orientation. This is what he said. He said, you can go out there in the woods with a dull axe, and you can work all day, spend twice as much energy, do half as much good as if you came and got your education, prepared yourself for that. You sharpen the axe, he said. You get wisdom, you get an education, you get knowledge, and you can do twice as much with half the effort. Listen to me, kids. It may seem like a long grind, the most useless thing in the world, getting that education. Wisdom prepares the way for success. You spend a little time sharpening the axe, you can do twice as much with half the effort. And verse 11 if the serpent bites before being charmed, 
there is no profit for the charmer. While he's getting the serpent ready, he bites him so he doesn't get paid for the little act. It's another way of saying, hear me, it's another way of saying, think ahead. The damage has already been done often before we ever think ahead. Don't think about setting the course after you're in the ditch. If I could say one thing tonight to these young people here, I'd say this, that you decide what you're going to do before the crisis comes. You decide what you're going to do in situations before those situations ever arise because then it's too late. And so you set your course now what, how you're going to live. And you make your choice now before the, before the crisis comes and the choice is made under the heat of that crisis. Now on the back of that worksheet, some food for thought. Here's the thought. How do we get this wisdom into our head? How do we get this wisdom into our head? How do we, how do we keep from acting like a fool? Well, James 1.5 says, If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. And you're saying, Preacher, be sure and tell him that. That's right. But I want you to turn to the second chapter of Proverbs. I want to show you how we get this into our head. Proverbs chapter 2 shows us how we work together with God. Now folks, God doesn't deliver wisdom to the front door like the, like the morning newspaper or a, or a bottle of milk. And knowing how to live life from the right perspective isn't something that God just does for you automatically. You can't just ask God for wisdom and expect Him to deliver that to the front door without you doing something about it. Here's how it happens. I want you to take a pencil and I want you in verses 3 and 4 I want you to circle the word if because that describes the condition for gaining wisdom. Verses 3 and 4. For if you cry for discernment Lift your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasure. Now we need to get, a, again, a definition of wisdom from the biblical perspective. Wisdom is seeing life from the divine perspective and handling life with courage and, and, and with stability. Now, if he says, if you seek for that, like somebody seeks for silver, and if you search for wisdom as for hidden treasure, and that's the price that one must pay for getting wisdom, to seek for it and to search for it. One day I was uh, talking to, my, uh, to a friend of mine who, who, had, who, who had as a hobby to look for these you know, buried treasures. He had one of these treasure hunters, you know, that you, you've seen them around, you have people going around, you know, listening. 
and uh, he, he sold those, and so he, he was, he was, he, he was going to sell me one. I didn't think, you know, I didn't think there was anything to that. So he gave me this story about, he said, well, man, people find money and jewels and rings. He gave me all this story. He told about this guy, he said he, 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 he was interested in getting one. His wife didn't want him to spend the money on one, so he finally talked her into it. And, and on their way home, he said, Honey, I'm going to stop here and just, you know, they went past this old house, you know, on the way out in the country. He said, I want to stop here and, and just use this, try this just for a second. He said, Well, take me home first. He said, No, it won't take but five minutes. And he said, He went out there, and in five minutes, he'd found a toolbox full of silver dollars. I thought, man, in five minutes, he, he got rich. You know, so I bought me one of those things. <laughs> Sold that sucker to me. And, and uh, you know, I thought you just took them out and you just kind of waved them around over the ground and you get money and rings and toolboxes full of silver dollars. I found out it's, it's not that easy. In fact, you've got to get a big old hunting knife and you get out on your hands and knees and you dig and most of the time what you find is these pop-tops off a tin can, you know, off a Coke cans or something like that. Uh, it's not that easy hunting for treasure. Sounds easy, but it's not that easy to get wisdom, to see life from a divine perspective, to handle life with stability, courage. It comes after struggle. Here, now that's a pretty phenomenal statement. Then you will discover the knowledge of God. After this quest for, for the treasure of wisdom, you get God's mind, you get His knowledge on life. And here is the promise, verse 6. For the Lord gives wisdom. From His mouth come knowledge and understanding. Knowledge is what to do, and understanding is how to do it. Now, I, I don't know anything else but to say that this, you know, this is just God's Word. You find God's way, His knowledge on what to do and how to do it. I heard something one time of a, of a minister who knew that he was going to be getting on up in retirement time, so he began to put a little money aside for an investment, and he bought, it some, bought some property, a little piece of land, a little ranch, a little ranchette. It was just about, you know, most of it was just rocky hills and scrub oaks and stuff, and he, every, every Friday, took off on Friday, one day a week, and he went out there and he worked on his little ranch. He just put a a lot of time and a lot of money and a lot of effort into that. Pretty soon that old rough hillside began to, you know, flourish. After years and been out there every Friday, he, he just had him a nicest little farm and, and some pasture land and some cattle out there. And one day an old farmer saw him and came up to him. He said, you know, preacher, he said, I've been watching, he said, Man, I'm, I'm just pretty impressed with what you and God did out here in this 
old rough, scrub, scrubby land. The preacher said, you should have seen the place when God had it all to Himself. Some of you are just absolutely certain that God is going to get you out of debt. God's going to make me thin. Somehow I'm just going to pray and God's going to zap me and I'm just going to be thin from now on. God's just going to give me wisdom. It just doesn't work that way. It comes when men search as for silver and as for treasure. But there is a big and wonderful difference between the man who has the knowledge and the wisdom of God and the fool. It's the difference between eagles and prairie chickens. Let's pray together. Father, never let us be satisfied with mediocrity. God, help us to see that those choices we make are so important and valuable. God, help us to make choices that are wise. And let us know that we'll not be able to make those wise choices, avoid stupid mistakes, if we don't have your mind and if we have not found wisdom and knowledge. I pray you'll help us in our search, that you'll keep us diligent in the quest to be a man of wisdom because I pray in Jesus' name. I'm not sure tonight if we have those that need to respond publicly, but I want to give you an opportunity to do that. Just one stanza of invitation. There might be some who would like to come and join the church. There may be those who would need to come tonight to take a fresh stand for, for God, or maybe there are even some who would need to come tonight to profess their faith in Christ. While we stand to sing, we invite you to come.